Hey, welcome to Plant Yourself. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Two quick announcements before we get to today's show. If you're interested in becoming a health coach, I'm offering another run due to popular demand for people who can't make 8 p.m. on Wednesday nights, Eastern Time. So we're doing another run of the program, which will meet the practicums will meet at 10 a.m. on Wednesdays, Eastern Time U.S., which means if you're in Europe or Africa, uh, that might be good for you. Also, if you're in the US and evenings aren't good and you have free time in the mornings, either 7 a.m. Uh, Pacific time or 10 to 1130 Eastern, then you can participate. If you want to find out more about becoming a wicked effective health coach, you can go to wellstartcoach.com. Second thing is, if you're not aware of it, Josh Lajani and I have a book that is free on Amazon Kindle. It's called Sick to Fit. And if you just go to Amazon and search for Sick to Fit, you'll be able to download it for free and read it on any Kindle enabled device, even a phone, smartphone, tablet, computer whatever. All right, let's get to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com, Wellstart Health and Sick to Fit. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a compassionate and connected life. So this is a special Friday edition of the podcast, and the timing is so that if you are looking for amazing holiday gifts, you can take advantage of today's offer, which is a donation to help build a cow house for the Piedmont Farm Animal Refuge located in Pittsburgh, North Carolina, whose founder and volunteer manager, Lenore Brayford, joins me on today's podcast. There's a video. She came to Sun Studio, so we set up the camera. So if you want to check that out, just go to the show notes for today's show, which is plantyourself.com slash three, five, six. I first went to the refuge. I'm embarrassed to say I live four and a half miles away, but I didn't go until last month when we made it a field trip for the Sick to Fit retreat that Josh and I led in November. And we were all struck by the, the wild and proud spirits of these animals who have been given their forever home by Lenore and her partner, Paul, and the staff and the board and the volunteers. Look, there are billions of farm animals living and dying in misery every year. And obviously a single refuge or even a thousand refuges can't solve that problem because it's not a it's 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 a demand problem, right? Not a supply problem. But what Lenore talked about was one of the goals of the, the sanctuary, obviously, is to is to rescue animals in need of rescue and to give them kindness and healing and care and love so that these animals who have been so horribly treated by humans open their hearts to us again. It's amazing how quickly they can forgive and become comfortable. Watching animals recover from trauma is extremely inspiring and empowering. But beyond that, these animals, as Laura says, can act as ambassadors, can show us that animals are not just commodities to be uh, stockpiled in freezers and, and shelves and, and eaten as if they were not real, as if they were not sentient. Because when the, when the meat you eat is a commodity packaged and uniform on the supermarket shelf, it's easy to feel totally fine about your consumption. But when you've made friends with a turkey like Jordan, who has now become in your mind a person with his own personality and preferences and quirks and fears and desires, you really got to think twice about the origin of the flesh on your plate. When you hear the story of the goat Sweet Mama, which 
Lenore tells in the podcast, and you get to witness her children, Ace and Ivy, living and playing and loving thanks to their mother's courage. You can't just lather up with goat milk soap and think that everything's okay. When you when you get to meet Robbie the Romantic Rooster and you see his resilience of spirit and deep caring, you realize that these are people in the same way that humans are people. And the other thing I want to talk about before we get to the podcast is the idea of animal-centered design. Uh, Lenore's partner, Paul, is the architect who's created all the buildings. If you take a look at the show notes, you'll see some of the photos of the uh, the housing for these animals. And I've, I've uh, last weekend, I spent three hours cleaning out the duck houses. And so I got intimately familiar with every crack and crevice of those structures. But but the goat houses, the the uh, the, the sheep homes and, and the cow barn that they're going to be building is based on uh, Paul's an architect and he builds with what he calls animal centered design. So it's a great conversation. I encourage you to to watch it if you can, because Lenore is a a bright spirit. Even if you just watch a few minutes just to see her face and her animation as she talks about what has become her life's mission. And if there's anyone you're thinking of giving a gift to, think about making a donation to their Kickstarter campaign, which you can find at their website, piedmontrefuge.org. That's P-I-E-D-M-O-N-T and refuge, R-E-F-U-G-E, piedmontrefuge.org. The top of that website will take you right to their Kickstarter where you can donate in someone's name or if you're just moved to... uh, to make a gift, the Kickstarter is an all or nothing. So it either all gets funded or none of it gets funded. And it just started this week. So that's why I wanted to do a, a pre-Christmas, pre-Hanukkah podcast episode to give people the chance to support this, this amazing mission and organization. I mentioned that I visited part of the Sick to Fit retreat. And I just want to mention that Josh and I have another retreat on the calendar, March 5th through 8th in New Orleans, Louisiana. You know, Josh came up to uh, to my little town of Pittsburgh and we had a kind of rural retreat with uh, a dozen of us. And we're aiming for roughly the same number in New Orleans. It's going to be much more urban. It's going to be walking, streetcars, music, incredible food. And again, hanging out in a beautiful home with me and Josh as he demonstrates the life and the skills that got him from 420 pounds to an athlete to the cover of Runner's World. If you want to find out more about that, it's at sick2fit.com. That's sick number two, sick2fit.com slash N-O-L-A, NOLA, New Orleans, Louisiana. Finally, if you're looking to make 2020 your bestest year ever, consider hiring me as your coach. It's a year-long program, costs much less than you think. It's unlimited laser coaching, 15-minute sessions. You get the recordings. You get an email after each one with our agreed-upon homework. And you get support to make those changes, to finally have your behavior, your actions, your systems in alignment, in accord with your goals, values, and priorities. Find out more at plantyourself.com slash laser, L-A-S-E-R. All right, let's get to today's conversation without further ado. Lenore Brayford, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, you had a long drive, huh? <laughs> yep, about five minutes. <laughs> right. right. And um, that's when I discovered that uh, you know I would drive down past the road where 
spoiler, the uh, animal far, farm animal refuge, the Piedmont farm animal refuge. Mm-hmm. Is that That's all, right. all the words in the right order? You got it. <laughs> okay. The refuge for sure. The refuge. <laughs> yeah. I saw this amazing barn going up and had no idea that it was you, it was vegan, it was animal welfare and yeah. rescue. Was um, that maybe the goat and sheep houses that are closer to the road? Yeah. Yeah. We, had, we met a lot of neighbors when we were constructing that house people would pull in and they would ask us many questions about what is this structure because it was a little bit unique in its design and so it was a cool way to meet people in Pittsburgh <laughs> yeah I was worried for a while it was it was some yuppie house <laughs> <laughs> well someone thought it was a like a chicken house uh-huh. an industrial chicken house we said oh no 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 <laughs> this is the opposite <laughs> right. so anyway that's a that's a, a good uh, segue now that we spilled all the beans yeah um Tell us about the uh, the Piedmont Farm Animal Refuge or the Refuge. Yeah, so we are a nonprofit organization, and we work to rescue and provide lifelong home to farm animals who come from abuse, neglect, abandonment situations where they are unsafe. Um, so that's really our primary mission is providing those animals a safe sanctuary in which they can live out their life. Um, make new friends, heal from their past experiences. And we also do a lot of education work in both how these animals are treated in our society um, and vegan, vegan diets, living a vegan lifestyle, because all of these things are intertwined with one another. How these animals are treated, um, our choices directly affects that. So um, as an organization that rescues animals, education is a really big part of what we do because our goal is to help as many animals as we can. And a lot of that comes through personal choices and um, information that people have. So what's, what's your interest? What's, how, did, how did you arrive at, the, at being a co-founder of this? Yeah, so when I was young, I loved animals like many people do. Had cats growing up in my house and just never made the connection at a young age, although I was one of those children that refused to eat a lot of animal products, not necessarily consciously, but Mm. I just sort of had a distaste for a lot of animal products growing up. Did it feel like just, I don't like the taste of them, or was it like some, some little part of your soul was... It's unclear. From what I remember, I simply was averse to certain tastes and textures. Mm. So um, this was uh, annoying to my parents, but they figured out pretty quickly we're not going to you know force this child to eat these things so they just kind of went with what they could they could get by um but when i went to college it's funny we have we have so much power when we're four years old and like if we, if we just had that energy still we could get so much done oh, like I tap into that. your inner stubborn to- post toddler absolutely sorry yeah um yeah, in college, I kind of immediately went vegetarian. Um, I went to Oberlin College in Northern Ohio, mm-hmm. and I mean, in the cafeteria, there was a whole vegetarian section. So it was like one of those things that was super easy to do. Um, I already was almost there with my diet choices, um, and so I was vegetarian for a few years. So, when was there a moment where you sort of became vegetarian in terms of identity? Like it seemed like yeah, the diet was really really similar, yeah. but it seems like it was a you know a name got attached to it. Yeah, I think r- right when I when I started uh, my college years and kind of I was no longer living at home and my food choices 
I had more agency over that is kind of when I just said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to just go vegetarian. Um, and it really, for me, was just cutting out a couple things I had been eating and didn't feel like I really needed to eat those things. So. And what was your reasoning at that point? My reasoning at that point was, you know, I, I love animals, but, and this is easy for me to do. Mm. And I did not at that point know much about how farm animals are treated in our society. It was just sort of this, kind of natural progression for me. Um, but as I was in college more and more, I was majored in environmental studies. So through that lens, I was learning more about the factory farming industry and industrial agriculture and those effects on our environment. And while I was learning about the environmental impact for school, I was also learning about the impact on animals in terms of my personal morals and just my consciousness. And um, a particular course that I took my senior year um, is what had me go vegan. And it was an environmental philosophy course where um, my professor was giving out assignments to two students at a time. And he would give us a debate topic and he would assign, you're going to debate that it's ethical to do this action, you're going to debate that it's not ethical. So come back to the class and present your findings. Well, I was given, it is ethical to eat animals and animal products. That's so great. It was great. And boy, do I wish everybody had to do that. (laughs) Because in trying to come up with reasons, I convinced myself, well, I need to go vegan because what am I doing? (laughs) So it was wonderful because it really made me think critically about these moral issues, right? This is someone's life. Versus, you know, very small things, you know, taste, convenience, tradition. Um, And so I lost the debate, (laughs) but um, it was a really important turning point in my life. So Uh So I don't know much about the field of environmental studies in terms of, you know, who's in it, what what they're concerned about. Is it is it typically a like a a vegan friendly field or a progressive or like because I could imagine lots of schools would have. Schools of you know departments of environmental studies that might be at like an A and M college, or you know an agricultural school like or a strong dairy program like Cornell, where they wouldn't necessarily go there. There's there's so many environmental problems that they just would right. would have a lacuna about animal agriculture. Sure, um, and I think that my the place that I went to school was a big part of that because Oberlin College is known as a small liberal arts, extremely progressive um, college. Um, One of the professors there is a well-known author called David Orr, and he's now retired from the faculty, but he was one of the professors I had at the time. Um, And, you know, it's kind of interesting. I remember him, you know, saying in class, you know, these personal choices that we make are important, but I drive this really old truck that I love, and I'm going to keep doing that. So it was sort of like... We need to make these changes, but I'm going to bring up the point that I'm still doing something because mm-hmm. it's important to me. So there was there was definitely no one in the environmental studies department who was strongly advocating for a plant-based or a vegan diet. But those kinds of impacts in terms of how they affect the climate and water pollution were talked about in, from an academic perspective. So it wasn't um, until I kind of got into those like cross-disciplinary courses, like that environmental philosophy course. Um, and that's something that I love about Oberlin is um, within your major, you're, there are so many courses that are not 
just in the sciences, but apply to you and you can take and get credit towards your, towards your major. And so that's where I think a lot of the interesting learning comes about when we can kind of combine, um, you know, environment with philosophy or other kinds of uh, overlaps like that. Right, right. This podcast is being brought to you by the admissions department of Auburn. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. Uh, but yeah, like, um, I mean, in working on Whole with T. Colin Campbell, I saw really clearly the dangers of being a strict disciplinarian, mm-hmm. meaning being just in your discipline, in your lane. Right. Um, Absolutely. So, so the, Block you know, out the rest of the world, then <laughs> you're not going to really have a lot of context to work in. So. Right. And not having context means that when you're, you, you could be right and still extremely wrong. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, all right. So you, um, you came out of Oberlin. Mm-hmm. You were a, a vegan at that point. I was, yeah. <laughs> and like lots of people come out of school with a, with a passion, with an identity, and then they just go off and you know, forget all about it or, right. or become a weekend warrior for what, what, what was next? Yeah. Well, what was next for me was some travel and, um, I, you know, just kind of being a vegan in terms of my lifestyle and my choices, um, and not doing much else. Um, and feeling like, you know, this was something I was growing into. I was learning how to do this when I was traveling or living in different places. And, um, I was learning how to cook, you know, I didn't learn how to do that even at home really. So in college and afterwards, figuring out how do I make tasty foods? Um, and you know, how do you do that in a society where being vegan is not the cultural norm? So where can you find those good recipe books? Um, and how can you adapt family recipes Mm -hmm. into a vegan version? Um, but I did some soul searching, um, and really trying to figure out what do I want to do with my life? And I kept coming back to being a child and having this affinity for animals and this natural connection to them. And I started to think, what could I do within that field that would align with my values and my passions? And I actually never heard of a farm animal sanctuary before. So when I went on the internet, I started looking at this type of work, I ran across Farm Sanctuary and some of the bigger organizations that had been around for a while, and I said, wow, look at this. This is something kind of exactly what I was thinking, Mm -hmm. but I had just never run across it, and I think that's true for a lot of people who are not in the the vegan world or the sanctuary world. Um, So so a couple things I'm curious about. One one is, so when a lot of people go vegan, all of a sudden they experience trauma, right, from... Either, you know, it sounds like you didn't have a lot of this from sort of your own personal behaviors. You had mitigated animal consumption for a while. Mm -hmm. But in just all of a sudden seeing, like walking through the supermarket, and now you're seeing friends Mm -hmm. in plastic wrap instead of inanimate meats. And, you know, I know a lot of people who become very angry and um, turn everybody off. Like, did you have any of that? Yeah, in the in the beginning when I first went vegan, I was definitely someone who was trying to get all my friends and family to watch, you know, these gruesome videos online, you know, meet your meat and all that kind of stuff. You've got to, you've got to watch this, you know, and, you know, people didn't want to watch it and they yeah. they didn't like my approach. And I wouldn't say I was an angry person, but I was definitely kind of aggressive mm-hmm. um, in how I was talking to others. And, you know, if I didn't know about this and 
I assume you don't know about it, so learn about it and go vegan with me, you know. Mm. Um, that wasn't really working for me. <laughs> um, and so I kind of, you know, figured that out, as I think we all do. Um, and slowly just, you know, for a lot of people in my family kind of said, well, I'm just going to do my thing and, and mm. uh, see what comes of that. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of my personal trauma, like you mentioned, you know, going to the grocery store or like seeing others eating animals, it, it did affect me, but it affects me now more than it ever did then because mm. I now have a personal relationship with these animals who I live with and I care for on a daily basis. So it's not just, oh, I've seen this video footage and I know how that yeah. particular chicken suffered before they ended up on a plate. It's, I know a chicken who has a name who I see every day and I can envision that individual on your plate. So mm. it's actually more emotional to me now than it was in the early days. Right. Yeah. It feels like you have um, much more of a capacity to hold it. So almost like when you know, like the the, the zealotry of the converted. Like when you don't actually, when you just have the idea, like mm. oh, eating animals is terrible, and right. all these suffering animals. Like you can really kind of be untethered mm -hmm. in your response, whereas like you're speaking from from real love and real grief. I yeah. think there's there's a there's a way in which I'm imagining that you can be much more in control and effective from that place. Yeah, I think that number one, just as you are vegan for more and more years, and you people you know make jokes or ask you questions you figure out how to emotionally deal with that personally, and then you figure out how to respond to those um, questions or those jokes in the most productive way to, you know, further a conversation or something of that nature. But, um, yeah, I think that because I do have that personal relationship with these animals, I can speak from so much of a more intimate perspective that it does feel more authentic and real to someone other than, you know, my, I can think, think about my early self talking about it. And um, I really didn't know what I was talking about in some aspects. I mean, I knew, but I didn't know. <laughs> right. right. And the other thing that, that really struck me is you said, like, you spent time, like, becoming a vegan or growing into it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I think about it, I think, well, vegan is basically stop doing a bunch of things. And yet for you, it was, it was like a, filling up a positive identity as opposed to just, I don't do this, I don't wear this. Yeah, and I, I definitely think that that is sort of um, something that people think about veganism is it's just denials, <laughs> <laughs> and they see it sort of as a negative, um, which um, probably when you're first doing it, you feel that way. Um, but I definitely don't feel that way about being vegan, and for me, there's been so many types of foods that I now like that I didn't used to like and that I have been willing to try that I just didn't think about or didn't have access to before. So I don't see it in that way. Mm -hmm. All right. So you, you were uh, looking online. You discovered that there was such a thing as farm sanctuaries. Yeah. Uh, I only knew of one until pretty recently, the one in uh, at Watkins Glen, New York, mm -hmm. which I, I visited um, a decade, 15 years ago mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, now. So what made, like, when I heard of that, I thought, oh, great, there is a thing. I understood, like, just doing the numbers in my head that you weren't going to save all 
farm animals, so it didn't occur to me like you needed more. Like maybe you yeah, have one on the West Coast, <laughs> but it's like Disney. Like you don't need you know you don't need Disney in every town, right? They're sort of like destinations. What what made you think that? Like having one, mm-hmm. a modest one in a, in a community, mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, a place where, you know, Corning, New York and Cornell and Finger Lakes where, where like people were going to come as right. destinations. Yeah, I think my idea of what a farm animal sanctuary would be in those early days was based on just ideas, right? It was not based on anything in reality. So, um, you know, I kind of imagined myself, you know, out there you know, rolling around in the hay and and leading pigs through a sunlit pasture. <laughs> you know, what a great, you know, back to the earth, back to nature kind of life it would be. And it would be idyllic and, you know, all this free time to like, you know, cook plant-based food out of my garden. <laughs> so, you know, I sort of had this idea about it. But at the root of that, it was coming from a place of these are these are my morals, and this is something I strongly believe in. And like, what? How can I align my life with something like that? So, yeah, and it's and it's, all, it's, all, it's it's so funny. But if you, like, if society were like, society could be set up like that. Like, it's not the world, it's not the universe, you know, nature, God that's stopping you. It's like you know, all the things you have to do other than that right. are, are because of human civilization. This is true. <laughs> yeah, money. Yeah. <laughs> Darn. Uh, but yeah, I, uh, I actually, the fir- one of the first things I did was um, uh, do an internship at Farm Sanctuary in Watkins Glen, uh, the same one you mentioned, um, in uh, 2012. And uh, that was a really grounding experience. Um, I was pretty committed to going to that sanctuary and really making sure that the people there understood, like, I was, I was serious. Mm-hmm. So I, like memorized all the animal names in the first couple days i asked to be put on extra shifts like i even got to go on a rescue when i was there like i tried to show as much initiative as i could why was that important um because this was a new field for me um i had no experience in the animal sanctuary the animal rescue field my background up until then had been working with children with autism and other disabilities as sort of a one-on-one therapist and an advocate and a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was really switching to a, a whole different field. And I didn't, I wanted to learn as much as I could while I was there. And mm-hmm. so I really, I wanted to kind of stand out and I wanted them to realize, oh, here's someone that we might take her on a health checks round uh-huh. because she's someone who really cares about this. And what could I soak up from mm-hmm. that experience? Um, so that's how, how, how I went into that and um, really ended up spending the next five years uh, doing work through internships, through volunteering, and also being hired at a sanctuary on staff um, before I got to the point where I decided, yeah, I'm ready to start my own. And I actually know what this work Mm-hmm. is now um, somewhat you know it's, it's a constant learning process of what this work is but I had a much better idea um, that it was uh, a lot of hard work and a lot of working mm-hmm. out in the weather and uh, a lot of dealing with death um, and things that are not idyllic and and fun as my younger self had imagined so mm. yeah okay. so so 2012 2013 you did your the internship Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I went vegan in 2007, and I did an internship at Farm Sanctuary 
in 2012. 2012. So, yeah. Ah, so that's, and then another, so five years then preparing yourself. So actually there were some other animal internships and things I did um, before that closer to home here in North Carolina. And it was, it was farm sanctuary in 2012. That was my first one at a farm animal sanctuary. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did some work at um, a pot pig rescue in the area, um, as well as some exotic cat rescues in our area, including Carolina Tiger Rescue. And so those experiences, plus the internship at Farm Sanctuary and um, mm-hmm. another one at Woodstock Farm Animal Sanctuary, were, were sort of the five-year period. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was actually in 2012, after my internship at Farm Sanctuary, that the refuge was born. Gotcha. <laughs> so, yeah. so how do you go about manifesting that into reality? Yeah, so the way I went about it <laughs> um, is kind of methodically and uh, really by the book. So I had been told by a lot of the other rescues and sanctuaries at this point that a lot of people say they want to start a sanctuary um, without having a lot of experience and uh, maybe they do start one and then you know a couple years down the road uh, other sanctuaries are rescuing those animals because mm-hmm. it was not thought, thought out well um, and when I was working at Carolina Tiger Rescue in fact that very thing happened at a sanctuary um, in the western part of the states and there were so many tigers and other animals there that needed to be rehomed which some of which we took um, but many of them had to be euthanized because there was simply no place for them to go. Mm-hmm. And um, so s- these lessons I was able to absorb through mentors and people telling me this over and over again, but then mm-hmm. also through that personal experience of right. what like this a, tragedy that had happened. So. Yeah, like a farm sanctuary isn't just for Christmas. Right. right? Like a puppy. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I really started by... Getting the 501c3, forming a board of directors, you know, I went out to any kind of vegan, vegetarian meetup, hangout that I could find in the area and just said, hey, this is who I am, this is what I'm doing. If you want to be involved, you know, here's a sign-up sheet, see how you can be a part of it. Mm. Uh, And this was all before even, like, getting the property to start it. So, um, kind of just started with the bare bones of a nonprofit and getting some people who cared about it on the team who wanted to bring it into fruition. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like a very entrepreneurial approach because, like, someone could look at you and say, "Wow, what a what a big risk you took!" Um, you know, getting this property and doing something that's so countercultural. Mm-hmm. But it seems like you you mitigated risk every step of the way. I tried to be as responsible as I could. I really wanted to do it right. And there were not everybody in the beginning who was a part of the organization really saw it that way. Some people, well, we need to rescue animals right away. We need to, you know, buy a little shed down at Home Depot, put it up, and get some animals in there because there are animals that need help right now. <laughs> and I mean. Yes, that's true, but every single day of our lives, there are animals that need help right now. And Mm -hmm. my vision was really to do something sustainable um, and to do it right the first time. I didn't want to buy a little shed that was going to need to be repaired in a couple years and be another one to replace it. Um, So 
I kind of stuck to my guns um, and grew a lot through figuring out how to navigate uh-huh. <laughs> a lot of those conversations and, and, and dialogues. And I'm but. guessing, I don't know how old you are, but I'm guessing that you were one of the younger people in a lot of these conversations. Absolutely. Most of the people that even now are involved with the refuge on our board of directors or um, on our staff are older than me. So, yeah, that's an interesting dynamic to be a part of. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was... A lot of personal growth. I would say this starting this organization is a continued journey into personal mm-hmm. growth. You know, there's mm-hmm. so many things to learn and to push yourself. And um, I feel really good about what I'm doing personally because I know that I'm a place in my life now that I would never be if I had, you know, done some right. other paths. <laughs> right. uh, this, this podcast is sponsored by the be, be, Grow a Farm Sanctuary and Don't Have to Buy a Therapy, Don't Have to Pay for Therapy. <laughs> I never said that. Yeah. <laughs> you might need extra therapy. Extra. <laughs> Some but of it can be pig therapy. Right. But you'll get there. Right. Uh, was there ever, were, were you looking at this in terms of a go, no-go? Like, were there things you were thinking, like, if I don't get these signals from the world or from other people, that it, I'm just not going to do it? Or were you like, I'm going ahead, hell or high water? I think at this point, because of the time I'd spent in other sanctuaries, I was confident that I was going to do this. Now, mm-hmm. the question it was, how big was it going to be? And was it just going to be, you know, me doing a little hobby, you know, having some animals mm-hmm. in the yard, you know, taken care of? Or was it going to be a larger organization? Um, so um, thankfully, uh, getting the land and starting that process, uh, I found there was such a giving community of people who wanted to be involved and some of the first volunteers we had out there were people who are still involved with us who are now you know in leadership positions um, but who literally came out uh, there was nothing on the property Um, they didn't necessarily have a skill set but we said we need to build this house for these chickens and turkeys and so Here's a here's a hammer. Here's an electric drill. This is how you use it. <laughs> this is what we need you to do. And um, it was really amazing to see who we could find now that we needed some some hands on deck. So, so let's go back to the property. I mean, it's, yeah. uh, how many acres is it? So we have 20 acres. Um, in the beginning, we got 16, and then uh, about a year later, an adjacent property of four acres plus uh, an old farmhouse became available and a donor was able to come in and help us get that and we now use that house as sort of our main office it allows us to have staff working on site and um, we run our tours out of there we have a little gift shop things like that mm-hmm. so. so 20 acres I mean around here I mean it's not you know New York City but it's not cheap so how did how did yeah. you Get the money. Yeah, so the original 16 acres, um, I had some funds that a relative of mine had given to me for my college experience. Um, But because of a number of factors, um, I did not need to use that funding for college. So I had these funds, and I really wanted to use them to get the land and start the organization. Um, so that's what I ended up doing. Okay. Did you need their permission for that? Um, I didn't, but I did have to talk to the rest of my family a little bit and kind of convince them that like this was important to me and uh, this was something that I was really trying to build and it wasn't going to just go away in a couple of years. So, mm-hmm. so that was a little just of an internal family discussion. <laughs> right. I mean, were they worried like, how are you going to make a living? Like, are you going to spend all your time doing this and the pigs don't pay well? And 
Yeah, I mean, I think there was there was not necessarily direct concern, but just questions about okay, have you thought this through? Is this something that you know you're really committed to? And things of that nature. So, yeah. Gotcha. All right, so that was you convinced them or you set their minds at ease. Yeah. Bought the land, mm-hmm. and you'd had a bunch of volunteers and people who had already expressed interest. Yeah. And how do you know what to build? Yeah. Well, one of the first things we did in order to get interest was actually we started holding vegan bake sales. And this was a great way to not only do outreach and you know show what amazing things you could eat that were vegan, but it drew in a lot of the vegan community. And so we were able to meet a lot of people that way, which was really cool. And then we'd say, hey, check it out. This is, this is a fundraiser we're doing, and we need you to come out and help us build this house for chickens and turkeys. In terms of the house itself, uh, my partner Paul is an architect uh, now and at the time was in school. Um, and so he was able to use his design sense and his experience um, in building. He had done um, some work through AmeriCorps uh, Habitat for Humanity in the past. So mm. he had learned how to build certain structures, certain houses. Um, and so he was sort of able to lead myself mm-hmm. and uh, other folks who maybe didn't have as much experience. So, so it's like you're, 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 you're like on, uh, on eHarmony going, I need a vegan architect. <laughs> well, uh, well, actually, Paul and I met uh, the, before the first day of college, before either of us were vegetarian. So mm-hmm. we made a journey together okay. uh, towards You are both this. at Oberlin? Uh, we were both at Oberlin. That's okay. right. That's right. Um, so, so yeah, so at this point we had bo- we both went vegan around the same time and, um, you know, he was very committed and he wanted, you know, to support my dream and what I was doing. Um, so yeah, he, to this day is, um, you know, the refuge architect <laughs> and, um, has really honed kind of his approach and what he's doing from the beginning, which was sort of subconscious to now being very intentional about the designs for these animals, which is really to try to design from their perspective, what we call kind of an animal-centered design approach, instead of thinking about other considerations such as cost or what does a barn look like or um, what would be easiest for the caregivers. Um, We're really trying to focus on what would a cow prefer to live in? What kind of structure would they build if they could build one for themselves? And and um, it's such a it's such a strangely revolutionary thought, right? Like I've I've interviewed people on the podcast, like uh, Carl Safina, who wrote this book Beyond Words mm. about animal, you know, sort of cognition, but animal beingness and animal consciousness. And he points out that most science doesn't believe that that even exists, mm. right? So if the elephant mother, like, positions herself between the truck and her baby, you're only allowed to say the elephant positioned herself as if she was trying to protect her baby. Uh, as if, yeah. <laughs> right, because you can't know what she's thinking. Right. And so, to you know, like, I, I worked with an architect once. I was on the staff of a school, and they were building a new building. And mm-hmm. this guy came, and he talked to us for hours and hours. Mm-hmm. And a real, like, by the end, it was like, you know, he was practically a teacher. He understood us from the inside out. Yeah. And, but to think that you would do that with an animal, mm-hmm. with, a, with a species, right. is, is pretty remarkable. Well, um, that's definitely something that 
we're attempt to do. And uh, whether or not we get it right, <laughs> we only know through the animal's interaction with the space and then what we can further learn from that. Um, and our goal is not to build the best, you know, cow house that everybody should build. <laughs> it's an attempt to build something with the animals in mind and um, to be sensitive to that and to realize that this is a place that they're going to live for the rest of their life and the place should reflect that and it should reflect our values as an organization, which is we do recognize animals as individuals uh, with individual needs, wants, and desires. And uh, yes, as a species, they may have certain likes and dislikes, but also within maybe a group of goats, we may see them interact and use their spaces differently from one another because mm -hmm. they're individuals just like we are. So. Right, right. And, you know, what comes to me is the only other person I've ever heard of who's done animal-centric architecture is Temple Grandin. Right. Right. It's designed, her, her design is to keep them calm as they're being slaughtered. Right. And it's really, yeah, about how can we move that line of cows in a more efficient manner towards their death and how can that save money and time for these industries. So it's it's almost using the animals' behaviors against them. It's like, oh, well, we've determined that this this is how they will be calmest and, and less and less scared. Um, so let's employ that em, employ that technique, but it's to their ultimate demise instead of using those ideas to help them and create a wonderful environment. Right. Well, I guess I guess any kind of psychology has that dual edge to it. You can, man, you can manipulate <laughs> or you can enhance. Absolutely. Um, so um, maybe we'll get we'll get some photos and I'll put them up on the on the. Um, um, show notes page because yeah. they really are remarkable buildings and I'll, I'll link to, to various videos um, but I want to talk about the animals because mm -hmm. like you you know the first thing I noticed about our tour so we did a you know Josh and I had a retreat we brought like a, you know, a dozen people first thing I noticed about the tour is that you knew every animal by name and I'm like that you know they kind of all sort of look alike <laughs> to me <laughs> Like, am I, you know, is there a brand or something? Like, how the heck does she do this? <laughs> yeah, well, I think, you know, when you think about all the people that you know in your life, you know, you go to, let's say you go to a family reunion, well, you're going to be able to tell them all apart, <laughs> even though there's maybe 50 all in a group. Right, they all share DNA. <laughs> right. It's very similar. Um, <laughs> if you or anyone was around these animals every day um, and were responsible for their well-being, uh, you'd be able to tell them apart, and not only would you be able to tell them apart, but you would know them as individuals, and you would know that Lily is shy, and Electra is super intelligent and runs away when the vet truck comes, and, and uh, Jonathan is very chill and relaxed, and you know their personalities are, are part of who they are. So. I don't know about that. I think you could spend <laughs> a lot of time with them. It's, it's about the quality of your seeing and your intention. I'm sure there's people who, you know, in factory farms who spend tons of time with animals and, yeah. and don't see and choose not to see. Mm. So I think, you know, the key is like, you know, for the, understanding their welfare, like first believing that they are individual. Like you don't see them as individuals unless you believe they're individuals. It's this almost is, like believing is seeing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that at the Refuge, what we try to do is create the best space that we can or that we know how to and then let the animals 
live in that space and become themselves. And sometimes that takes a lot of time. And I, I think because the organization is set up that way and that's our focus and that's how we approach the animals, that, yeah, there is sort of that... Um, that way of being with them and knowing who they are that's built into how we interact with them, how we train volunteers and staff members to interact with them. And so I think that that kind of is, goes back and forth because if we are noticing and responding to their individual needs, then they're hopefully recognizing that and feeling even more security and safety and okay well she noticed I like to eat over here mm. <laughs> so my food is now put over here and that's how I like it you know <laughs> and that kind of is goes back and forth and the more they are comfortable the more we can see them who, for who they really are and understand them. So who, was there a a first animal for you that you that was you know a person? Yeah um, well the first animal for me who was a person were definitely animals I um, interacted with uh, at, at other sanctuaries um, and really re recognizing this and realizing this. And I think that this, this goes back to even as a child, you know, so many of us when we're young talk to the cat or, you know, read aloud a book to the dog. Well, I, as, I, as, I, as I asked the question, I realized what a stupid question because, every, you know, like you said you had cats. Yeah. Like but for farm animals, mm -hmm. like farm animals are a different category in our minds to see them yeah. the same way you would see a cat or a dog. Yeah. And I think that was, for me, part of what becoming vegan was about was sort of real, making those connections and realizing that we know cats and dogs as individuals because we're given that opportunity. But these other animals are no different in their complexities, their abilities to share affection and um, their joys and their pains. It's just in our society, we don't have a lens and give them a name and, you know, give them that space. And so I think I, I made that connection you know, in going vegan and starting to, to visit other animal sanctuaries. Now, the first animal who came to the refuge uh, is a rooster named Robbie. And, um, you know, already having that mentality about animals. Um, he, um, he was quite young when he came. He had been misidentified as a hen, which is very common when chickens are young because it's hard to tell male from female when they're super small. Um, and he was living in Carborough in a uh, intentional community and when they discovered he was a rooster and he would be crowing all day long and doing rooster things um, he wasn't allowed to stay and that's something that many towns say mm -hmm. you can have the females but you can't have the males because of all the noise <laughs> it's probably pacifica uh, it wasn't Pacifica, but no. it was one of those. <laughs> and so the community came together and said, well, what should we do about this rooster? And half the people wanted to cook him and say, well, he has no use. He makes noise. He doesn't make eggs. We're going to put him to use. Mm. And the other half said, no, let's find him another home. And luckily, they, there were enough of them that they won the argument. Right. Um, it sounds, so, like, yeah. sounds like most of the boys in the co-housing community where I live. <laughs> A lot of noise, no use. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Never cooked them. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we were lucky enough <laughs> that we got Robbie. And um, he still lives at the refuge. Uh -huh. And Robbie's and a romantic, right? He is a romantic. Can you tell that story? Absolutely. He, I've learned a lot from Robbie. Um, 
one thing that we saw with him, well, he was our first animal. So there he was by himself, you know, in this big chicken house. And we're like, this is exciting. You know, we're, we're rescuing animals. We're taking them in left and right. Some turkeys came in next. And then our first hen arrived. Um, and her name was Esmeralda. And she had come from a neglect case where early in her life she had been attacked by predators that had done some neurological damage, and for a while she would only walk in a certain direction. Um, That sorted itself out, but she was malnourished and just had a lot of issues. So she was able to be rescued and come to the refuge. And when she met Robbie, Robbie absolutely fell head over heels for her and proceeded to build her a series of about ten nests in the straw within a very short period of time, about an hour or so. So um, it was quite interesting because this, while this is a typical behavior that males will do to kind of woo the, the new lady and make sure, you know, she'll accept him, um, building that many <laughs> was really overkill. And I have not seen it since. I've never, I'd never seen it up to then. I've not seen it since. So he, he builds her all these nests over and over and over again. And she's checking them he came all from, out. He came from co-housing. So maybe, <laughs> there you maybe, go. Maybe he thought that's what it looked like. <laughs> Um, but yeah, he was, he was successful at, um, at wooing her to the point where we would try all these new animals we were bringing in. We would say, oh, here's some more hens to add to the group. And we would introduce them. And Esmeralda would chase them around and say, you got to get out of here. Robbie is mine. <laughs> and so this is, this is the way it went down. And we said, that's fine. If you two would like to live by yourselves, you can do that because this is what we're trying to do is set up a, a situation where all the animals can do what they want and can live with who they want. And uh, they proceeded to live out life together for several years until Esmeralda um, passed away. And uh, that was a hard time for us as well because Ravi uh, became ill. He refused to eat. And our vet said he was depressed. And that was why he was going down this road. And it was so extreme that um, he had to be tube fed um, because he was just refusing to eat or drink anything. And so we decided to go the route of introducing some new hens who had, had just come in and needed a place to go. And at first he made no movement whatsoever to say that he even acknowledged them. Um, and we were very concerned that we were going to lose him to essentially a broken heart, which was what was happening. Um, but it seemed that after about four or five days, um, he started to peek and say, okay, who are these new ladies? And slowly but surely, he came out of his depression and he accepted them um, as new flock members. Mm. So uh, Robbie lives with them to this day and is, is doing very well. But um, it's just, you know, these kinds of stories... I can tell many stories about individuals at the refuge that really illustrate that they are much more like us than they are unlike mm-hmm. us, and people don't really understand that about farm animals. Right. See, that's, what I want to explore is like a lot of people around here have backyard chickens. Mm. Uh, we had black backyard chickens a bunch of years ago, mm. and you know we got our um, you know the Orpingtons and the okay. Australorps and yep. you know, a bunch of the fluffy yellow ones. Never <laughs> really told them apart, but I never saw anything resembling mm. that I interpreted as 
feeling. It's mm-hmm. like, like, you know, when I heard the Robbie story, I'm like, can I have a tissue, please? <laughs> right? Like, this is a love story, you know. Absolutely. And, like, what is it about backyard chickens or, like, the way we, even when we do humane farm animals, yeah. that we don't see the range of who they are the way we do at uh, Refuge? Yeah. I mean, I think in some cases it's the spaces that the animals are in. So if we're talking about a farm setting, um, it's how are those animals being treated? How long are they getting to live? What kind of environments are they in that they're really not feeling like they can be themselves. But in some cases, I think when maybe it's like backyard chickens, it may be about our noticing and the time we spend with them and um, just understanding how to interpret the language of someone who's very different from you. Not only a different species, but, you know, chickens are birds and we're mammals. So they're very different from us. Um, And so... Just being attuned to that and trying to figure out how are they communicating with one another? What do these body movements or these sounds mean? And can we learn from that? Um, And for me, at the refuge, it's just about the time being around them. I mean, every day, you know, opening up the house, feeding them, you know, doing health checks on all the on the animals, making sure they're in good condition. Um, that time around them and getting joy out of that just sort of led to, I think, um, that noticing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I love to do a couple more animal stories. Sure. Um, you talk about the um, those the big goats. Mm-hmm. Was it Ace? Ace and Ivy. Ace and Ivy. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, Ace and Ivy were the first goats that came to the refuge. similar to how Robbie (laughs) was the first uh, chicken. And uh, they came with their mother. um, And her name was Sweet Mama. And her name was very fitting. In fact, I once saw her licking a baby deer through the fence. (laughs) She really wanted to mother anyone who would let her. And this makes a lot of sense because she had been denied being able to be a mother for most of her life because Sweet Mama came from a dairy farm. And... Traditionally, they give birth and the babies are taken on the day they're born or very shortly thereafter. And so all of those motherly instincts Mm. that she was ready to put into these little ones were not able Mm. to be expressed. And just just to connect the dots, talking about like goat milk. Yeah. Right, like goat milk soap and goat milk is so much better for you than cow's milk and it's so much more ethical. Right. So, okay, back to your story. Yeah, I mean, goat... Dairies are very similar to cow dairies, right? The principles are the same. You need to be pregnant to have milk. So in order to have that milk be used for humans, those babies who are born through your pregnancy are removed from you. And the amount of milk that they are given is, you know, doled out in specific quantities and usually either bottle fed or fed on a machine uh, to those babies. So... It's taking something very beautiful and loving and really mechanizing it and turning it into a profit-driven system. Um, and so that was the situation that Sweet Mama was in. For how, Do you know how many times that had happened to her? Well, typically um, they'll give birth or they'll be in, artificially inseminated or bred to give birth uh, at a minimum of once a year because through the cycles of a pregnancy and everything, they want the milk production to be at a certain rate. 
And so after that time period go goes, goes on, the production will go down if they're not re-impregnated. Um, so we estimate Sweet Mama was about seven mm-hmm. um, when she came to the refuge. So, you know, for six years or so, she had been going through that process. Um, and at the age of about seven, her body had started to give out, and she was not producing enough milk even when she was pregnant. And that's something that naturally happens to goats and cows and anyone who's being put through that very laborious um, system. Mm-hmm. I mean, if your body is just in a in a routine that is not what you would have naturally of always giving birth and always being milked. Um, and so what happens to these animals at that point and what happened to Sweet Mama is they are sold for slaughter because... The amount of feed and grain that's being put into them, um, they're not giving enough back. So um, she went to a slaughter auction, and instead of being killed like so many of the others from that farm were, she managed to escape from the slaughter auction by jumping some fences and running across a road. Um, And there was a woman... And I'm sure this auction is set up to keep animals from doing that. Absolutely. Like that's the main thing. That's the main job of the architecture there is to keep them there. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It, it was really a testament to Sweet Mama's personality as to the fact that she was not only able to get out of there and to get across the road, but that at the time she was barely able to walk and she was mm. very thin. Um, We're good. Okay. <laughs> So, um, luckily for Sweet Mama, um, and whether or not she sensed out someone with a big heart or not, you know, I don't know, Um, but a woman who was on that farm that she found across the road found Sweet Mama, or Sweet Mama found her, and this woman took pity on her and said, I'm going to keep you away from there. You know, she had all the tags and everything on her, and she said, I'm going to take these tags off, and I'm going to start feeding you and try to help you, because... Like I said, Sweet Mama could barely walk. Her hooves were overgrown. She was emaciated. And so this woman started to come every day and bring her food. And she arrived about two weeks after the point when she had escaped with food for the day. And Sweet Mama was giving birth. And this woman was shocked. I mean, this goat was in terrible condition. But yet, here were these babies coming out. Not just one, but two. (laughs) And so um, Ace and Ivy were born. And at this point, the woman had witnessed their birth had witnessed their bond with the mom. I mean, they nursed on her for the first time. And, I mean, I've seen animals when they've given birth, and the look of joy and pride in their face is absolutely undeniable. I will never forget those animals that I've seen. And this woman saw that, too. And she said, I need to find a place where this family can stay together, and they're not going to be separated like they always are on farms. And she started to look around, and she found us. And it was amazing timing. We had just finished the construction of the goat house, and we were getting ready to take in some animals and put the word out there, and, and uh, she reached out to us. So Sweet Mama came with Ace and Ivy, and for the first time she got to nurse and raise and keep these kids Um, and they lived every day together, and they snuggled, actually. They had a nap in the sun every day in the (laughs) afternoon um, until uh, the day that Sweet Mama passed away. 
And, and, and we visited Ace and Ivy, and they're, 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 they're big, and they're in charge. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> yeah, they, and they, uh, they're they had, living the good life. And <laughs> yeah, they, they had a life without Aces, without adverse childhood, uh, whatever the E is, experiences. <laughs> yeah, right? they have a pretty good, uh, they've had a pretty good life. They've gotten to be with their mom, and uh, they, they've gotten to stay together as well as brother and sister. Um, and that's another thing that I think people don't often think about, but uh, I've witnessed many times that farm animals do have close relationships with family members, not only mothers, but siblings, twins, and they will show a preference for hanging out with them, you know, snuggling with them, doing, doing daily activities with them. Um, mm-hmm. If they're separated for a time due to a vet visit or something, you'll hear calls of distress. So, you know, Ace and Ivy are, um, are going to get to stick together as well and uh, be at the refuge for the rest of their lives. So. Lovely. Let's talk about what, one more uh, group of animals, uh, which is the sheep. Sure. And the reason this is interesting to me is, you can see, I'm, I'm, I'm wearing wool socks, mm, mm-hmm. and these are the last pair of wool socks I'm ever going to buy because wow. of the damn visit to the... <laughs> I love wool so much. Oh. It's such a great material. Yeah. And after visiting and hearing you talk about the sheep, I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> oh, I'm glad that we were able to, to, <laughs> to educate you. <laughs> Kicking and screaming. Mm. Um, and I remember, you know, the, the first thing was, I, I'm blanking on her name, the, the really old, like the 17-year-old hair sheep. Oh, yeah, flower. Flower. Yes. So, um, yes, flower is a unique a domesticated sheep because she is a hair sheep and hair sheep are one of the only types of domesticated sheep that are actually as they are meant to be. So they have a coat that looks like the coat you would see on a goat or a dog. It looks like short hair. And just like a goat or a dog in the summertime, they shed and they get a thinner coat. And then the wintertime they grow out a fluffy coat, just how nature intended them. Um, unfortunately, most domesticated sheep have been selectively bred over many, many, many years for excessive hair production. And then the wool has grown to be a point where it doesn't matter what season it is, they can no longer shed. And uh, that, is, that is not how nature intended, but it's through many years of humans selecting, well, this one has more wool, and this one has more wool, and that's what we want from these animals. Mm-hmm. And so um, most of the sheep who live at the refuge have a big woolly coat right now, which is great as we're going into winter, but come spring is going to cause them a lot of problems. Um, right. And my thought was, well, they, they like, you know, they need to be sheared. Right. Right. <laughs> so why shouldn't I benefit? Right. Uh, shearing day is my least favorite day at the refuge. Um, although we do a very slow and de- gentle job with our sheep, um, they are very stressed out by being handled and kind of turned upside down because we have to get all the all the crevices in the belly and everything. Um, so they recover and they're okay. But most sheep who are shorn are shorn in a very fast industrial way um, that a lot of people have probably seen videos of online. Um, it's super stressful. There's a lot of cutting and nicking that goes on um, to those animals. Um, but one of the biggest things about wool that people don't realize is that most sheep actually have a long natural tail. Um, but because of having so much hair growth and farms not wanting to deal with washing sheep if they get sick and they have like a runny poop, 
the tails are cut off of almost all sheep now on farms. In fact, most people who come to the refuge are shocked to see the long tail on the sheep because you know, they've lived their whole lives thinking sheep naturally had this little cute bobtail when that's actually a mutilation that's been done to them. Mm. So that's a part of wool that most people don't know or understand um, is, you know, that tail is cut off with no pain medication or anesthesia. And there are several breeds of sheep that not only have the tail removed, but all of the skin on the butt and even down the back legs is literally skinned off of them alive with no pain medication as well. That whole process is called museling. And, um, it's, very, can, it's a very sweet name. Is this a sweet name? <laughs> sounds like a sweet yeah. <laughs> It's yeah. a very violent thing that unfortunately these very gentle creatures go through. Um, the other thing about wool is how long do you get to live? if you're a sheep on a wool farm. And a lot of people would think, well, you just live out your natural life. But in reality, farms don't have a budget for vet bills. So Mm -hmm. if you think about all of the things that happen to you over the course of your life and the different doctors you have to go to, maybe you trip and you sprain your ankle, you're getting a little bit older, um, there's a lot of things that happen in the course of an animal's life. And farms don't want to deal with older aging animals and all of the cost and the the trouble that goes into that. So if you're a sheep on a wolf farm, you might get to live to be five years and then you're sent off to slaughter and younger sheep come and take your place. And so that's another thing. How how long does sheep live? Yeah, um, sheep can live uh, up to 20 years. So that's a very short part of your life. So it's essentially killing humans at 20. Yeah. A quarter of our lives. That's right. Mm-hmm. so I want to talk about the uh, the Kickstarter and the the cow barn. But before before yeah. I do that, you you said something that really uh, struck me on our tour was that you built this so the animals themselves could be the ambassadors. Mm. What, what do you mean by that? Um, so the animals as ambassadors. Um, most people, including me, until I had the privilege of going to a sanctuary, ha- don't really know who farm animals are. And their only experiences with them may have been at, like, a county fair or at a petting zoo or at a farm, something like that. And these are all spaces where these animals are not comfortable and they don't feel safe. And they're not living in the optimal conditions for them. And so because of that, they're not expressing who they are and they're not comfortable enough to show their personalities and their natural behaviors. And so at the refuge, because our goal is to provide them with the best possible environment that we can to our, the best of our ability and our knowledge, um, people can actually observe these behaviors and these personalities and they can see turkeys doing what turkeys do. <laughs> the, the image I'm getting is imagine like a, a, an alien species came to, to Earth to examine us and they went to the New York Stock Exchange. <laughs> oh, that's what human... Right? In a cage. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Or, you know, just, just go to any office where we're sitting in these cubicles, right? <laughs> right? Right. Or Black Friday at Best Buy. Or... <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, now I'm trying to think of environments in which we are right. <laughs> ourselves. Absolutely. I think animals can teach us a lot about 
you know, how to reconnect with who we really are. But, um, but yeah, I think that's what the refuge does is it provides a space for the animals to be themselves. And then because of that, when visitors come, they have a new understanding and a new appreciation for the animals. And that hopefully is our goal, um, impacts them and allows them to say, I'm going to make a different choice. You know, next time they're at the store buying a certain product, they're going to say, I'm not going to buy that because I met, you know, Jordan the turkey. And uh, he came over and took treats from me. And, you know, I saw that he was a person. And so I'm not going to buy that turkey in the store that's a person, even though I didn't know him. And um, in that way, these animals are helping others of their kind just by being who they are. Great. So let's talk about the, uh, you, you want to bring in another species. We do. We're very excited to be moving towards large animals. In, by saying large, I mean cows. And if you've ever been to a sanctuary and seen full-grown cows, I remember the first time I saw them, I thought, they're elephants. <laughs> they're actually the size of elephants. Most people don't realize that because most cows are killed at just a few years. But cows are another species who they can live up to 25 years at a, at a loving home or at a sanctuary. And um, they're quite big. So um, we're at the point now where we feel like financially and um, time-wise, we are uh, we want to move in that direction. So our Kickstarter uh, uh, for our cow campaign is live. And uh, what we're aiming to do with this is raise some of the funding that we need to build the habitat for the cows. So this includes fencing to keep them safe and all the water and power lines, but also the house for them. And so um, my partner, Paul, who is the architect, um, is going to be um, in the early parts of the new year, starting his research phase, um, going to find cows in any and every environment he can, um, just sitting, sketching, taking notes, watching them through the course of a day. What do they do during the day? What kinds of things do they seek out? What kinds of things... Um, do they avoid? <laughs> what kinds of spaces do they seem to enjoy? Um, and putting all of that knowledge together over a time period to design hmm. that house. Does he also talk to like veterinarians? Um, he tries to talk to a variety of people. So that would include veterinarians, um, sanctuary directors, people that have been working with rescued cows. Um, but he also looks for opportunities to observe cows in farm settings to see what is, what is working here and what is maybe not working here for these animals. So he tries to just get any kind of opportunity he can to observe the animals. Gotcha. Yeah. And so give us the details of the, of the Kickstarter so we can help out. Yeah. So um, one of the great things about the Kickstarter is um, we have perks at different levels of giving. Um, so you're able to uh, get some really nice gifts back um, as a thank you for supporting us mm. and for contributing to the cows. Any, any t-shirts? Yes. T-shirts are awesome. <laughs> we have several t-shirts. In fact, we have a super merch pack which is at one of our um, giving levels where you get uh, actually two T-shirts and a hoodie plus a bunch of other wonderful things. Mm. Um, but we're debuting some new items for, um, for our perks. We have a really cute 
um, mug that has a hand-drawn image of a calf. That's a custom image um, done by one of our supporters um, with, with the refuge on it. We have a stainless steel water bottle. Um, at the higher levels, we actually have some really cool experiences, including um, a private cooking class for you and up to 10 people by uh, Kathy Hester who is a cookbook author from the area, and she's really amazing. Uh, we also have another cooking instructor who's doing sort of a, a VIP, a very important picnic uh, experience at the refuge, where you actually get a gourmet vegan picnic experience, and then you get to go on a special enrichment tour. Not only do you get to meet the animals at the refuge, but you get to assemble interesting um, items and then present them to the animals and see what they do with those items. So, mm. for example, you might carve a pumpkin in a certain way, fill it with certain treats, give it to a goat, and see what they do with that. Mm. Um, so, it's a real unique experience that we don't offer any other time. Nice. Yeah. Nice. And so, where can people go find this Kickstarter? Yeah, uh, our website, uh, PiedmontRefuge.org. And Piedmont is. P-I-E-D-M-O-N-T. Yes. And then refuge, R-E-F-U-G-E dot org. Dot org. Mm -hmm. And you can Mm -hmm. learn about the Kickstarter there as well as more about our organization. If you're in the area, you can learn about how you can come for a tour or maybe get involved through volunteering. So what's what's a, a story of someone who came to visit for a tour and was affected? Yeah. Like school children or like who... You know, like like there's you know there's millions of people, but maybe a story like we have a story of Ace and Ivy, like right. So, I mean, I'll just say that we do send out tour surveys to most people that come on a tour, and we're able in those surveys to get anecdotes about their experiences and how they were impacted. Um, there are many people who come on a tour and are feel very emotionally impacted by a story and may cry or um, may say something like, well, I can never eat a turkey again. Um, So that happens quite frequently Mm -hmm. on tours. But my favorite um, experience is working with children because children have such a natural connection to animals and they're not afraid to ask questions. Um, Why does that animal missing her horns? Or Mm -hmm. what's what's wrong with this one? Um, And... One of the programs that we offer is um, a camp for kids called Camp Compassion. Mm. And it's a much more intimate way for children to learn about these animals and care for them. So the kids that come to camp actually participate in the regular daily animal care that we do. So they get to prepare the food um, for the animals, give it to the animals, watch the animals eating, um, you know, provide enrichment items, clean out the house, I mean, do everything for the animals. And it's really beautiful because they are creating personal relationships with the animals, and the whole camp experience is about fostering compassion towards others and how in life, you know, we do things for ourselves, everybody is selfish, but, like, look how much more joy we can get out of life if we are doing something for someone else. Right. And for, you know, kids don't really matter these days, like the Mm. things they do. You know, you could play this game or you could read this, you know. It's like to to matter, to know that your your efforts and the extent of them and the quality of them are going to have a material impact on another being. Yeah, you made a difference in in that goat's day. (laughs) 
So, uh, so there's the Kickstarter for the the new cow mm -hmm. facility, mm -hmm. but you also uh, this thing isn't cheap like to run on a day to day basis. I want, uh, people, yeah. people have a sense of like your your ongoing need for for funds. What like you said, you have like a thirty five thousand dollar a year vet bill. Yeah, that's yeah. For us, the vet care is our main cost for the animals, um, and we have to think about again. These are animals who are coming to us sometimes at a young age, but no matter how old they are, our promise is we're going to take care of you until you know we can't do anything else for you, just like we would do for a human, you know, in our mm -hmm. lives. And so those costs um, are quite significant. Um, but we also have the ongoing costs of all the food, um, all the bedding um, to that we replace every week, and all the animal housing, um, and all the other things that go into to running mm -hmm. a big operation that we do. Yeah. So um, some of the best ways that people can support us are becoming an animal sponsor, which is a symbolic way, but um, a really sweet way to support the refuge. You can choose a particular animal, for example, you know, Ace the goat or Dexter the duck, and uh, you get a rescue portrait and a story of how they were rescued and came to the refuge, mailed directly to you. Um, and that's a, um, a monthly fee, so you know, $5 or $10 a month or whatever it is, um, that goes really to help support our organization and, and all those, those costs that I mentioned. Um, but also what's really important is that as we grow, we are doing that with recurring funding that we can count on. So we're now at a point, thanks to our community, where we say, hey, we can actually expand and take in some cows. Mm -hmm. And the more people that sign up for those recurring gifts, that gives us the financial stability to do that. Um, and that's a really important part of how you know we sort of started in a sustainable way, and we're really committed to that. Of we don't want to get in a situation where you know everybody was able to give a hundred dollars this month, but next month those people weren't able to give a hundred dollars. Um, mm -hmm. It's much more helpful for people to give ten dollars a month instead of you know a hundred dollars once. So the animal sponsorship program is a great way to get involved. Yeah. Yeah. So, and is anybody on staff getting a salary? Yes, we have um, two staff members um, who work part-time. Uh, we have an administrative staff member who is actually the first person we hired, which might surprise someone when they're thinking about an animal rescue. Um, but there are so many behind-the-scenes things that we have to do as an organization to keep everything going. And so um, Michael helps with that. And then uh, we were just able to hire a part-time animal caregiver who works alongside me and our amazing volunteer team. Um, and that person was really hired in anticipation of these cows coming. And it was mm -hmm. part of our first phase to be able to even build the infrastructure and start rescuing cows. Mm -hmm. So Shannon, we're really happy to have her on the team as well. Gotcha. Yeah. Are you taking a salary? I do not take a salary currently. You need, um, you need a salary. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> if you know of anyone who wants to donate towards my salary, let me know. Um, but I hope that as the organization grows, um, that is something that will be able to happen. Um, but also as the founder, you know, my main goal is that this organization becomes something that does not need me mm. to run and operate. You know, I can go be hit by a bus and I know the animals are fed, well taken care of, and that more animals will be rescued in the future. So that's really my main hope and focus for the organization. Yeah. Gotcha. And just tell us the location for folks in the North Carolina area, or maybe you know, maybe it will become a uh, a destination <laughs> tourism you know thing. Yeah. Start building uh, animal friendly hotels and 
uh, and Airbnbs to support this Absolutely. wonderful place. Yeah, so um, we are in Pittsburgh, North Carolina. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> and so we're near the Triangle region, North Carolina, Chapel Hill, Raleigh, Durham. But um, our sanctuary is about equidistant to Greensboro or to Raleigh. So if you're in the North Carolina area, um, it's a lovely um, country rural setting um, and we actually do have a yurt on site so if you're from out of town and you wish to visit um, contact us and if the yurt is available we may be able to set you up there so. Ooh, I didn't know that yeah. <laughs> a new thought for some relatives <laughs> just stick right. them over at the revenue yeah. and when people come generally they can do, they can do like a two-hour tour yeah typically we offer it's a tour that's like between an hour and a half to two hours um, you get to meet all the animals, hear their rescue stories, ask all the questions that you have. It's a personal guided tour, so it's real intimate, um, and it's a great way to learn and kind of make a connection with the animals. So. Awesome. Well, Lamar, thank you so much for, for everything and for coming out here and, and sharing it. And uh, folks listening and watching, um, this, is, this is a grade A organization. This is... You know, like we all want to do good. We all want to help out. And there's so many charities and organizations that we just don't, we don't have, you know, we don't have a pulse. We have to check Charity Navigator and we worry about, you know, the CEO made $750,000. Like if you care about the environment, about animals, about humans, um, this is a great place to support. So Lenore Grayford, thank you so much for all you do and for coming thank out here today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. <laughs> And that's a wrap. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I hope you get a sense of Lenore's great spirit, courage, commitment, dedication. And I also hope you got to feel like you met some of the animals that we're working to to save and to, <laughs> sounds terrible, but to weaponize as uh, as missiles of of compassion and connection so that other people can understand what animal agriculture is and how it's destroying our souls. Again, if you're moved to donate, it's piedmontrefuge.org and follow the links to their Kickstarter campaign. If you'd like to see a bunch of photographs of the animals and some photographs of our Sick to Fit uh, retreat tour to the sanctuary, you can check out the show notes for today's show, which is plantyourself.com slash 356. You'll also find the YouTube video embedded there of my conversation with Lenore. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on hundreds of archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And if you're not new to the show, I'd like to invite you, if you, after you've donated to the Animal Sanctuary, to consider becoming a patron of this show. Right now, I am still the largest sponsor of the show, and I keep advertising out of it. I don't want to be beholden to anyone. I just talk about the things I'm up to and some good causes like this. I don't sell you know, sheets or underwear or mattresses or website hosting or anything like that. I try to get as much content in as I can and respect your time. And it takes time and money to produce this show. And if you are able to help, I would love it. You can just go to patreon.com and search for Plant Yourself or go to Plant Yourself and look for the red Patreon button in the right sidebar. Thank you so much. So in garden news, oh, there's no garden news right now. It's just really, really cold. And in running news, I'm pretty much back up to six miles a day, three, four days a week, 
doing arm day on Thursday, leg day on Monday, and so one or two longer runs over the weekend. So kind of in a, in a bit of a holding pattern, but feeling pretty good. All right, let's talk about thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use Sabali Don. The Dance of Peace is the theme music for this show. Check out willridenauer.com for more of his gorgeous Kora music. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons, my partners in, well, not crime, but whatever the opposite is, partners in grace. Here we go. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hadley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Alan Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Burns, Christine Hilson, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Kinovsky, David Bysak, Mysterious, Michelle X, Elizabeth Felton, Victoria Dolomanova, Leia Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Julian Rollins, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Sarah... Oops, almost forgot to rhyme her with circus. Sarah Dirk's drawings of circus. Kelly Cameron, Wayne Patterson, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Bennett, Gila Serk, David Donahue, Blair Seibert, Dorothy Rizzo, Gio and Carol Argentati, Joji Friesen, Ruth Ann Thunderberg, Misha Rosen, Michael Uberk, Horrorbeck, the Equally Mysterious, Tracy Z, Alicia Lemmis, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lindman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, remember that one, Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Berg, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Lash, Corker, and Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, and Plant Happy Oregon. Sabina Kurtzel, Nigel Davies, Marin Blum, Tamisa Copel, Shell Rutledge, Julian Watkin, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Rosalind, Ayat, Julie Lang, Holm Hedegaard, Issa Tuzan, Watt, Connie Hainline, Aaron Grisha, Olivia, Debbie, Alicia Davis, Aviva Lael, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Rolakoski, Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen, Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Kelly Baker, Miracle, and Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Natalie Peltier, Peter W. Evans. Colleen Harrison, Justine Divot, Joshua Summermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Deb Casilla, Emily Iconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Bacorny, Stephen Leenan, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Cartz, Dean Bishop, Bill Briel, Winter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bashar, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Goss, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Joan Borstein, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael K., Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire Inglewood, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganshi, and Amy Daly for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. So if you appreciate the Plant Yourself podcast and would like to help support the mission of the show, there's a few easy ways to do it. One is to just go to wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. Let other people know about it. Give us some stars. Give us some love. And that really helps us be found by more people. Something else, of course, you can do is let someone know about this podcast, someone uh, who you think would benefit. Send them maybe a couple of episodes that you think would uh, pique their interest or just uh, ask them to subscribe in general. And third, you can join arms and become a patron, a financial supporter of this show. You may have noticed that there's no advertising in the show and it's free for everyone and it's supported, paid for by those who can afford it. So if you would like to make a one time contribution or an ongoing monthly pledge, you can do so at plantyourself.com slash gift. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. 
Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Vizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selbig, Air Adams, Tom Fronsek, Jeanette Benham, Gail Assert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Toronto Vizo, Gio and Carol Argitati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Thunderbrook, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck. The equally mysterious Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, and Martha Bergner, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R, Susan Laverty, the Panda, Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant, Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Shannon Hirsch, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzumak, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Orlikoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divitt, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darmy Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McEntee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Lehman. Petty D. Martino, Mike and Donna Cartz, Deanne Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bashor, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullis, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, Diana, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt. Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidoroska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught, Abedable Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, and Danielle Roberts for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. As always, be well, my friends. <laughs>